Hey, everybody, we are here to tell you about a cool new feature on the website that we would love for you to check out. Head to howtosplitatoaster.com and check out the bottom of the page. You'll find a box floating there that says, quote, ask Seth and Pete, close quote. This box is magical. You just type a question in there and the robots behind the scenes will search the actual audio of our entire library of past episodes and not only give you a short answer to your question, but point you to the specific episodes where we discussed your topic so you can listen yourself. At this point, we're just testing it. To know if this feature should be a permanent feature on the website, we need your help. For that, we need you to ask a lot of questions. So head to howtosplitatoaster.com and click the box, Ask Seth and Pete. The robots will do the rest. On with the show. Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today... What happens when your toaster is an import? Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson. As always, I'm here with my good friend, Pete Wright. Today, we're talking about immigration. It's a complicated topic, and it's easy to get lost in the maze of politics and business. But what happens when immigration hits families? Tamina Watson has distinguished herself as a successful and committed specialist in U.S. immigration law. She has helped hundreds of businesses and families achieve their goals for working and living in the United States. And she joins us today to help us understand the complexities of divorce and parenting when immigration is involved. Tamina, welcome to the toaster. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. Tamina, I I have to tell you something. I'm going to be honest. Real talk. This is a safe space. I came into this show this morning. I've been talking to Seth a little bit before you showed up, and I am super curious about this area of the law, right? It's a divorce podcast. We're talking about divorce and the implications of divorce on immigration, immigration on divorce, parent, uh, you know, what it's like to be a parent, all that stuff is involved. And you know what Seth said? Sometimes the law isn't that interesting. That was his response. I put it to you. Please tell me the law is interesting in this area because I am deeply curious about it. Uh, You know, to me, at least, the law is interesting. And each fact pattern will make you pull your hair out because Seth isn't wrong. The law isn't interesting in many ways. But the fact patterns, but you have to nitpick at the law to see how it can fit your situation. And you are looking at it from an interesting angle. At least you're looking at immigration from an interesting angle of family law because it's not one size fits all. It's not one situation that fits all. Are you in the country? Are you outside the country? Is it custody? Is it not custody? Is it international laws? You know, there are just so many aspects to family law uh, and its intersection with immigration that to me, it's very interesting just generally, but specifically when it comes to family law. So let me defend myself, counselor. (laughs) Let me defend myself. I let you get through that whole answer. I did not interrupt, which is very difficult for me. I appreciate it. I want to point out a couple things. First off, it did not escape me that you said there's all these fact patterns that will make you pull your hair out and I am bald. Yes, it didn't escape me either, Seth, just so you know. Oh, I know, Um, (laughs) mister. I always wear a hat. 
Pete Wright. Okay. And you guys can cannot uh, see here, but Tamina has beautiful long hair. Okay. So the juxtaposition is just amazing. Okay. So that's, that's one part. And the other thing is, and I'm going to let Pete in on a little secret here. Something's, sometimes I'll say something's not interesting because I don't know anything about it. Oh, no, you always know about everything. That's I get it now. I get it. Not immigration law. And I have on I know people don't have this anymore. I'll be dating myself on speed dial. Mm -hmm. Some local immigration lawyers that I refer cases to because I know that I don't know this. And it can get very complicated and it can be very nuanced and the fact patterns can be very nuanced and interesting and confusing and a lot of moving parts because you're in the country. Well, how are you here? You're here illegally or are you here legally? If you're here legally, under what visa? And there's going to be all these different things that you have to go through to figure it out, right? And how does that impact the family law case? Well, and it's like a political hot potato, too, right? Like, what other area of law has so many vested political interests in it, like, right now? I imagine that has to keep these, as you say, Seth, these moving parts moving either fast or really slow. Very, very much so. I mean, uh, I've written several books, but one of them is called Legal Heroes in the Trump Era. And I write that book because it was a compilation of stories of what lawyers did during that time. Now, a reminder that the law did not change. What changed were policies. And those policies impacted every aspect of procedure, practical matters, and even the way adjudications were happening. And what happens is immigration is a topic that can affect almost every aspect of life. What people don't understand is, you know, you're picking those apples from the grocery store during COVID when you're not allowed to go anywhere because an immigrant picked those apples for you. You know, if you're looking at your phone, it's the network and the handset and what have you all are being looked after by professionals who are high-skilled immigrants. If you think about the worker shortage going on right now with, you know, the economy and businesses suffering, immigration plays a part. But of course, a lot of people, when they think about immigration, it's about the border as well. And so there are just so many different aspects of immigration that you can't escape it. I speak with and I work with family lawyers. Um, I work with, you know, lawyers like Seth. I work with lawyers in all different aspects because there's an intersection that happens quite often. Let's start with a little bit of table setting, if you please. What are some of the common kind of complications or cases that you run into, you know, at the intersection of complicated immigration divorce? Let's divide it by family-based immigration and employment-based immigration. And for your listeners, if they don't know about the immigration system, I'm just going to paint a quick picture. We have three separate big buckets, as I described them. Family-based, it's when you are sponsoring a spouse, a parent, a child uh, for a green card, uh, uh, and it can take as long as it can take, depending on the processing and which country you're coming from. There are set visas for that. That's family-based bucket. Then there's the employment-based bucket. That's when an employer is sponsoring for a visa or a green card, or you are sponsoring yourself for your own company. 
And it's all about work. So that's that. And then the last bucket is really a catch-all of the humanitarian, refugees, diversity lottery, and so forth. So I'm going to focus on the family-based and the uh, employment-based because the situations can be different. In the family-based, often you are looking at U.S. citizen spouses that are sponsoring their spouses from different countries, and eventually they come to the United States. Part of that sponsorship requires the U.S. citizen to prove that they are financially able to maintain that person. And when they do that, they have to sign a form called I-864. It is a financial support form, and that form is valid throughout the time that the person is a green card holder, uh, up until the time the non-citizen becomes an, a U.S. citizen. And it could be as little as three years for a spouse to become a citizen, or it could be forever. People don't have to become citizens. So that's one scenario. The not scenario, that's a bucket. I'm going to, we can deep dive into that later. But then when somebody is, um, and I live in Seattle, so the word Microsoft rolls off my tongue. <laughs> but if somebody is an employee of Microsoft or any company and they have a dependent spouse, that dependent work visa is wholly dependent on the principal person's working and their, their their continued marriage. So let me make sure I get this straight. There's one where you're an American citizen, you're sponsoring your spouse. Boom. Then there's one where you are not an American citizen. Your company, Microsoft, brings you over, but you're allowed to bring your spouse. That still falls under family, or have we moved over to the other bucket of employment? We have now moved over to employment-based. Okay, so now we're employment-based. I'm a foreigner, not from the U.S. Microsoft hires me. They need new in-house counsel. Great job if you can get it, Pete. <laughs> okay. Okay, corporate counsel. I'll start polishing up my CV. Yeah, and I want to bring my spouse with me. That's what we're talking about now. Correct. Got it. Okay, keep going. Now, in the uh, employment-based, you do not have to have that 864 that I just mentioned. The financial responsibility. That's right, because it's presumed uh, you, that you're married and there's a work visa involved. Now, each of these scenarios bring in different complexities in the immigration field. The call that I often will get is somebody who is an employee of a company, and often it's a dependent spouse. That's the person calling mostly, saying, well, I'm going through a divorce now. I My children are born here. They're U.S. citizens. If my visa is not renewed, I cannot stay here. What do we do? Does that make sense? So Yeah, it makes sense. But it also just broke my heart a little bit because I have a yeah. feeling it doesn't sound like it has always a great answer. It's not a great answer, and sometimes it is a power struggle between the couple. And often the lawyers, so I would speak with somebody like Seth and arm them with the immigration law facts that we need, and I become often the quiet sort of, you know, person in the back saying, well, now we need this document, that document, that document. So it becomes a, a, a negotiation issue about please renew my my visa so that I can stay here while we're negotiating. And let me tell you my first, first impression of this, Pete. Let's just say the wife comes to me and says, my husband is here on a work visa and my kids were born here. He's legally in the country. My kids are citizens. They're here. 
I am connected to him and he wants a divorce. And now I'm like, okay, time to call an immigration lawyer Mm -hmm. because she doesn't want to leave. Why? Because her kids are here. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So that gives a lot of control to the husband in the divorce scenario because he can be basically saying, well, I'll sponsor you to do this, this or that, or you're close to becoming a citizen. So how can we work that out? But I'm going to extract from you what you're entitled to in divorce court. Wait a minute. You're going to need to explain that. So uh, the, the green card process is very challenging, very long. It takes years. It depends on which country you're from, which category you're in to get a green card. Sometimes it can take a, over a decade, sometimes two, depending on where you're from. That work visa is your saving grace to staying in the U.S. for that time. Now, the question becomes, where in this process because let's say an employer is filing for a green card and it's going to take, let's say, a decade. You know, it's happening for the principal applicant, the husband in this situation, not the wife. And so the question becomes, when is this divorce happening in this entire process of the green card? And can they even survive it? If the green card application isn't even there and it's just a visa, and just to back up a little bit, a work visa, you can have an H-1B, an O visa, an L visa, an E visa. There are different types of visas. They're not green cards. Those are visas for the now, for being here. And the green card application is a separate pathway that allows you to have a green card in the future. But the visa allows you to remain in the U.S. while that process is happening. And so when in that process is this divorce happening is one of the first questions to ask. So if it's at the beginning of the divorce process, a process that now could take years, it sounds very much like that visa is not going to save the spouse. Potentially not. And so that's why the negotiations that happen with lawyers like Seth uh, for each party becomes very important about, do you even divorce now? You know, what can we have a separation agreement? You know, that kind of thing. So how that plays out, Pete? That's why, Carrie, you said extract something. And I, that's where I got confused. That's right. So the extract something is this. I'll stay married to you so you can get your green card and eventually become a citizen of the United States. And that process might take 10 years. But we're going to sign a postnuptial agreement right now. So we work out all of our finances in the event of divorce. And here's how it's going to work. And so now he has all the power. Yeah. He can basically say, I'm not going to give you much money at all. Right. She's going to have to maybe go find a way to work in the U.S. and get get employment from an employer that can sponsor her to get out from under him. And that can be very stressful. It can be almost under duress. Right. And so when I get these cases. One of the first things I say to, in our hypothetical, the wife is, do you want to go back to your home country with the children? Because then I can go to divorce court and say, judge, I want to relocate these kids back to, let's pick, let's pick a random country, the UK. Maybe someone knows something about the UK <laughs> on this show. I don't know. But back to the UK. And now he's got 
risk because now he's not going to see his kids as often as he wants to. So that's like the reverse leverage. I've exactly put those kids directly in the middle of this divorce where you don't want them to be to get leverage on husband over finances, which is all the things on the show that we talk about you should not do. Yeah. But what other choice as a lawyer do I have? And I picked a good country, the UK. What happens if it's not such a nice country? And she doesn't want to take the children there. Right. Okay. So, Tamina, can you uh, help navigate that? Because Seth just laid out a case that sounds pretty awful, the whole reverse leverage thing. But it also sounds like a potential reasonable course of action when you're put in a rough spot uh, by a not so savory husband. The law is that if she doesn't have a visa, the wife cannot stay here. Yes. And it's as simple as that. So what will happen is from a visa standpoint, when the husband's application for visa renewal is up and they have to file it, at the same time, normally the spouse's application is also filed. These visas are typically for three years at a time, depending on the type of visa you have. But on average, they're three years. And so the spouse would normally get three years as well. And it could be that you're negotiating to have the renewal now and figure out what happens within those three years and hopefully come to a conclusion. But at the same time, the spouse, the the wife in this situation would likely be talking to their own immigration lawyer to figure out how do I come out of this dependent visa? Can I become a student? Can I get my own work visa? And it depends on so many different things. To get a work visa, you must have, uh, depending on work, you might need a degree. You definitely need an employer. Is it the right time in the year to apply for something? If you're going to be a student, can you afford to be a student? There are many variables that, you know, to some going home might actually does, you know, might seem like the, the, the practical thing to do, but not necessarily the best thing for their future. So it's, it becomes very, very challenging and it tugs on your heart, yeah, especially sure. when the child, the younger the children, the, 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 the heavier it feels. The way we're talking about this negotiation, right? Like maybe we stay married until, just until you get your green card. Look. Everything I learned about immigration law, I learned from the Peter Weir film Green Card with Gerard Depardieu and Andy McDowell. And what I learned in that movie is that the U.S. government deeply frowns on marriage for green card kind of activity. How is this negotiation even happening in public with attorneys? Really good question. Seth, have you watched that movie? I did many uh, a long time ago. I don't remember the specifics of it, but. I can imagine it because I think I've seen other stuff where like they go and they're being interviewed and like, what's his favorite food? Toothpaste. It's always about the toothpaste. It's always about the toothpaste, right? (laughs) Where did they meet? What did you do? You know, what are your relatives? Does he have like stuff like that? Yeah. So much of the story is memorizing each other's backstory, right? Right. And listen, I'm happily married. I couldn't answer those questions (laughs) with my current wife. A million years. (laughs) I mean, I know she brushes her teeth. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I love that movie. Colgate, Crest, they both start with a C. I'm just not sure. It's so true. I mean, the questions that you get asked, uh, you know, that's the family-based scenario, by the way, in that bucket. And I, I, I talk about that movie. I also talk about the movie Proposal, oh, where sure. uh, Sandra Bullock suddenly realizes she's going to Sitka, you know, who's, you know <laughs> didn't even know where that was. <laughs> right, right. You know, that's exactly what happens. In the family-based scenario, 
the the relationship gets scrutinized very heavily. And there will be, recently there aren't interviews always. It's a very new thing that hasn't happened ever. Uh, but typically there is an interview that happens with immigration officers and the couple. And they're basically asking about whether their lives are integrated both financially and in life. So they'll really scrutinize, does each other have each other's life insurance? And, um, you know, are you sharing a bank account? And I will often tell my clients a bank account with two names and no transactions is really really worse than not having one at all because now you're showing that you've done something for immigration you know Uh, we're so frugal though i mean really frugal like you have no idea y'all we're so frugal we don't even make deposits right (laughs) oh my gosh so you know they they do look at that then if they're suspicious about things then they will actually turn up at your door steps at 1am or 5am, just like they did in that movie, to see who's sleeping where, whose clothes are in which closet, you know, that kind of thing. So that is one of the most scrutinized areas of law, immigration law. However, what I say to people is do what is right in your life and let immigration follow whether it is family law or employment based, because if it is a sham marriage, a I'm not representing you, even if there's a whiff of it. Um, and B, you're going to get found out. You know, I don't understand the people who say, well, you know, there was a sham marriage. I'm like, I don't know how that happens because two examples. One example is I was retained by a couple whose lawyers had, a lawyer had passed away. So I was retained to go to the interview. And it was my very first interview where I wasn't sitting in the usual room that I'm used to with the immigration lawyers, immigration officers, sorry. They will have their own designated office, you know, a cube office with a table and they have their own little, you know, certificates or, you know, pictures. A spotlight that comes down. (laughs) Exactly (laughs) what I was thinking. (laughs) Yeah, they have that. They have that. But if it's a fraudulent officer who deals with fraudulent issues, they don't necessarily always take the people to their office first. So I was taken into this random office, which was very bland. You know, it was just a random spare office that you sit in. And the clients were made to sit near the wall in two chairs. And the officer was sitting behind a very blank, empty desk. And I was sitting on the side. And the officer started with uh, our questions about, you know, where did you meet? How do you meet? These are the typical questions. And then they really did a deep dive on, did you meet the other person's family? Have you met each other's family? And it turns out that the U.S. citizen spouse, uh, their family lives maybe two hours away or an hour away from the marital home. And uh, the husband had never met the, the family. And uh, the other thing that happens is there are background checks in these immigration cases. Every case will have a background check, an FBI background check that has like 60 pages of who your family is, who your neighbors are, if they have criminal convictions and so forth. So that and I never really understood the depth of those background checks until this case, because what happened is the background checks will reveal if you are living in one address, but you're also registered at other addresses. 
And so this particular couple, the U.S. citizen spouse, the, the wife, was also registered at a different home in a different city where another man was also listed. Oh, dear. Uh, and I obviously don't know this backstory. I just know what the client told me. So the questions kept coming and coming and coming. And I can see them, you know, sort of feeling uncomfortable answering the questions. Uh, it went on for a lot longer than a usual, you know, 20, 30 minute interview. It went for almost 90 minutes to two hours. And when we came out, you know, it, it became very evident that she's listed at a second address with a different gentleman. Uh, who she claimed is a friend uh, that she goes and stays with once in a while. And this particular uh, husband, very sort of timid in his demeanor, it was very much telling his side of the story. And at the, the officer at the end said, we will call you back later. So when the interview was done and we sat outside to debrief, she admitted that, she, yes, she lives with this friend uh, who's there. And I can't remember if she admitted that in, to, in the interview or not, but she definitely ad admitted that to me. And I, they basically withdrew the application in the end, saying, you know, because it's not, not going to pass muster. Yeah, but the right. point of that story is that the background checks are essential. Nobody gets a green card with, you know, going around the circle, you know, the fire 10 times. If you like, in the, like in a, in a wedding, in an Indian wedding, they walk around the fire several times. The background checks are very much like that. There are different layers of it. So it's it. when people tell me, well, there was a marriage of convenience, I, it, I find it hard to believe how they get away with it. Nothing about that story you just said sounded convenient at all. Yes, <laughs> very much so. The the other piece of it is like this whole thing we're talking about, like I, I really I, I sort of latched on to the, you know, do your thing and let immigration follow, especially if you're here and your family is in crisis. I have to imagine that's not something that immigration officers haven't heard before. Right. This is not a foreign thing. Relationships break up like that's something they'll they'll find out. Very much so. And I, I and I and I say I repeat that sentence several times a week. Let your life happen and let immigration follow because which country you're born in, which visa you're applying for, which, you know, how are these going to impact your green card application? Do you leave that job where your green card is pending to go to another job? There are so many different facets of these analysis that are you going to lose that dream job if you don't get it right now? You know, uh, it, it, you have to make a lot of very difficult life decisions. And yes, sometimes immigration does become an important factor in those decisions, but it shouldn't be the first one. You know, it should be your life first, immigration second. Well, we talk about that in divorce. I tell people all the time, live your life, not your divorce. I'll give you homework, do your homework, but don't think about your homework all week. Just give me two hours on a Saturday and put it down and go spend time with your kids. Like, so it's that same, same concept. And and if you're playing it straight, then things tend to work out. Even if that means you have to go back to your home country, maybe there's a reason for that and you never know, right? I agree. But it, it's a whole lot better than trying to game the system and end up in a whole lot of hot water. Exactly. Different. I want to share a couple of other scenarios uh, that feel relevant. You know, let's say there's that couple who are on the work visas, you know, and the spouse is abroad. Um, they've gone to see their family members and suddenly these divorce 
you know, papers were served while they were not here. They didn't know. Oh, okay. Served while the couple is apart. One of them is yeah, out of the country. Apart. Okay. Yes, that does happen. And now how are you coming back? You know, uh, the divorce hasn't finalized for whatever reason, but this person needs to get a visa stamp from the consulate to be able to enter the U.S. But that consulate will not give you the visa unless your spouse's valid visa and pay stubs are provided to show that everybody's in valid status for you to come back. And so there have been scenarios where people are actually stuck outside the country. Because the divorce technically happened while they were gone. Or the divorce proceedings began or they nego- the, at least the, the, the lawyers are involved. You know, something has triggered where negotiations need to happen. But the, these visas, as I mentioned, are three years at a time. And you often will get a stamp on your visa to enter the U.S. If that stamp has expired while you're in the U.S., you can still continue to extend. But the moment you leave the country, you have to get a fresh new stamp to re-enter. And that's when these problems could happen. And Pete, we had a podcast about this where in Australia, right, trying to get back to the U.K. and all over the world and couldn't get a visa to get out and you can go without your kid, but it was it was a nightmare. Well, especially in a contentious divorce, right? The whole idea that one Pete, one party is, come on, Pete. Is, is there any to, other you know, kind? There are so many easy divorces. <laughs> your job is so easy. That, that where one party holds so much power, like we already talk. I mean, every week we talk about this sort of power dynamic between divorcing couples, but this scenario seems to be a dramatically out of balance. Uh, in terms of just power between the two parties getting a divorce when you can seriously (laughs) keep them out of the country by not providing up to date pay stubs just and that seems like a, a manipulative thing to do that sounds like it happens. It happens. I'm going to share a couple of other stories. I think it's as I'm talking, the, the scenarios are flooding yeah, back. Yeah, they're flooding back, right. <laughs> but the, uh, the, let's say there's a couple in the, there's a, you know, there's a foreign citizen in the, outside the country and somebody in the U.S., they're already divorced, let's say. And they, they have a custody agreement for the child. And that agreement is still in process. And in process, that child is abroad. In the meantime, the person in the U.S. on a visa is remarried, let's say. And they might be, you know, married to a green card holder, U.S. citizen, doesn't matter what the status is. But now the foreign citizens who, who is here in the U.S. on a visa, that visa holder, now is possibly getting a green card. And when that person gets a green card, their family members can get a green card too. So this child who is part of this custody battle with foreign law involved outside the country now has to think about how do I preserve the green card for my child? And so that person has to then go through going back and forth to the other country, figuring out with me immediately, how do I preserve my child? How am I going to get this green card? If I get my green card today, can I stop my green card today so I don't get it so my child can get it at the same time? This was a heartbreaking scenario in which my client thought, you know, we're going through this thing. It's going to take six months. It'll be done. However, it took about seven years. I might be exaggerating a little bit, but the entire process went on and on and on about how do we get the green card for you and your child who's not here. So that's a complicated scenario in and of itself. And the family lawyer is not necessarily in the U.S. at that point. There's a lawyer abroad who now needs to understand the U.S. immigration laws, which makes it 
10 times more difficult because at least a U.S. family lawyer will understand some of the issues I can share, but a foreign lawyer may not know that as much. Yeah, and that leads them to potentially, you don't necessarily need a divorce lawyer in both locations, foreign and local, but I've had those conversations because I've had conversations about where is it better to bring the divorce in a foreign country or the U.S.? And it was someone planning for divorce. So they were like, well, what do I do? I'm living here now, but he's willing to go back to this foreign country for six months. And I said, okay, well, you got international law. You have the kids. You have this. You have that. And so we had these, what I found to be very interesting conversations about international law and what was the best way to do it. But also, the reverse is true. You can have it where they're getting divorced. I'm just going to use the UK as an example again. In the UK, but there's property in the United States. And there's property in multiple locations in different states. So does the UK court divide that property? And if not, how do you divide it in the US court, state by state by state? And if you're getting divorced, in a foreign country, what do they actually do? So by way of example, I had a case many, many years ago, and I filed in Florida a petition for the division of marital assets, not in connection with divorce. So how do you divide marital assets that are not in connection with divorce? I filed this. A friend of mine who's a very good attorney, she read the title of my petition and she said, what the hell is this? She got to the bottom and she saw my name and she goes, Seth's a good lawyer. Let me look into this. And she looked back up and there was a statute that I quoted the statute that allows me to do this. Now, you guys should see Pete's face. How could you do this? Yeah, I don't understand what you're talking about right now. Because they're still married, right? You're just taking their stuff and splitting it? No, they're divorced? The foreign jurisdiction said, you're divorced. Oh. You're divorced. Congratulations. You're no longer married. They did not say anything about parenting plan. They didn't divide up assets. They didn't talk about alimony. And they had all this stuff. So you're splitting stuff after they're divorced in another country, even though technically, uh, technically their divorce is just sort of acknowledged here, even though, I mean, were they married here originally? No, they were, they they were married in a foreign jurisdiction. They got divorced. So I had to bring a certified translated copy of the divorce that I attached to my petition to show to this court, judge, they're divorced. They are no longer married. But the court never distributed the marital assets. Wow. Now, here's the beauty of this. One party was here. The other wasn't. How do they get into the country if they want to defend themselves? They can't. Right? It depends on which country they're from. Um, If you're from the UK, you can wave your passport and get in for 90 days. You do that just like that. She just waved it. You don't have to to hand it to the immigration officer. You just wave it. Tamina said it was okay. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You guys are so funny. It's called a visa waiver. There are several countries, or I forget, 32 countries that have that permission. I mean, it's in the name. (laughs) 
Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> I just put an action to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. <laughs> the Queen's Way, although, you know, oh, I missed Oh, yeah, so they can read it. Yeah. It's a little slower. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the that's what makes it so fascinating. And, you know, I have cried with my clients. I have laughed with my clients. You know, these are touching their lives to the core and it makes all the difference. One of the things I say is I am dealing with some of the most important things in people's lives, either their livelihoods or their loved ones. And each of these things can make them stressed, anxious. And how do you deal with these challenging issues while keeping your own calm. I mean, you guys have, you know, talked about it on your podca podcast about self-care and um, keeping your energies, you know, and the boundaries. You have to do that for yourself, particularly when the cases are so challenging, so that your calmness can rub off on your client to make sure that they can get through their own day and have a sense of stability in crisis. And it makes everything very rewarding, for sure. So I've got a question here, because I'm sure we have listeners out there that either know of someone that's dealing with this situation, they're dealing with this situation themselves. We have listeners across the country and across the globe, and we're not going to be able to answer all these specific questions. So here's the big question I have. From an immigration perspective, what should a potential client in a divorce case be asking their divorce lawyer and to say like, here's my problem. I'm not saying this is your area of law, but like what questions should they be asking and kind of the flip side of that coin? What questions should the divorce lawyer be asking the client to figure out where they need to get them to an immigration lawyer? Even before they go to a lawyer, Anybody who's ever had a visa will know that they went through a lot of loop hoops to get to that visa. They should have, before they even go to the lawyer, find all of their documents, all of their documents, and put them in a file. Uh, sometimes it is the foreign citizen who has to leave the family because she's being beaten up black and blue, or, you know, there's abuse of some sort. In those situations, even her passport might be locked up by her husband. And I just want to be clear that it happens both ways. I've seen power struggles from the spouse who's a female, uh, who's a U.S. citizen. I have seen it the other way around. So it can, it can be either way, even though predominantly it's women who are the dependents. The person should actually get, gather all of the documents that they can find. They should get anything that has two names and one address, bank account, tax returns, life insurance, car insurance. Find all of those documents to prove that this marriage is in good faith. You've been married for 10 years. Suddenly you find out your spouse is cheating on you. You now have to make those pathways yourself before you go to an immigration lawyer. Get all the documents. If you have paperwork from your past applications, gather them all and then go to a divorced lawyer. Often there are prenups involved. The prenups are not drafted by people like me. They're drafted by people like Seth. And the prenup is not necessarily part of the immigration package. It's a, neg a negotiation that happened beforehand. Find that prenup to see what is in that or not so you have an understanding. I have a quick question on that prenup. Yes. Foreign spouse, U.S. citizen, in the prenup, Upon divorce, the foreign spouse is going to get X number of dollars. If they can show that they have so much in liquid assets, does that then potentially help them get a visa to stay here to get employment because they can show I can support myself? 
Very good question. The visas are very individualized and not necessarily dependent on that financial support that was provided. I want to mention one other thing at the end of this, but if you're trying to come out on your own visa, you now have to start from scratch to see which visa will work for you. And often it's employment-based because the family is family-based is only when somebody's sponsoring you that has an immediate relationship with you. So now you've gone to your divorce lawyer, your divorce, you're going to say, I want to get divorced. What do I do? The divorce lawyer first the first has to ask questions back. And those questions will be, what is your visa status? How long were you married? If you are on a temporary work visa, when does that expire? If it expires tomorrow or, you know, next month, there may not be enough time to negotiate. But if there's enough, you know, expires in three years, you know, you have some time to play with. Do, are there any children involved? You know, do you have your own funds? Are you able to work? Some work visas allow the spouse to work. Other work visas do not, where they're wholly and 100% dependent on the financial support. So the divorce lawyer has to ask all of these questions, and there might be even more that I'm not aware of. Seth would probably know better than me. No, these are all good things for our listeners, because I was just really saying to the listener, mm-hmm. listen, get a list of questions, get your documents together, go to your divorce yeah. lawyer, and then make sure that they're working with an immigration lawyer. Yeah. Um, and I, I have a, a few immigration lawyers around town, and some of them actually practice family law, which can be very helpful. And some people say, well, why would you refer a case to another lawyer that does family law? I'm like, because if they can talk to one lawyer at a time and not have to deal with two, it's going to be less money for them. And I think that's going to help them in the long run. And this lawyer that I'm thinking of is very good in both areas of practice, mm-hmm. which is hard to do. It's hard to be good in one area. I agree. I agree. And I, I have a very dear friend who does both as well. And in some of these cases, I just say, go to her. She'll, she's a much better fit than me because she can take care of all of it. The other scenario that happens, talking about that work visa, green card, sometimes when you get a green card through your spouse, the first green card is only valid for two years. And if you do not renew that, you're going to be illegal, undocumented. And in that case, I will always send my clients to this particular friend. Um, But again, it comes back to what stage are you in your immigration journey and the uh, practical, you know, roadmap will be defined by that. Well, I'll tell you, I, I made fun of Seth at the beginning of the show, and I regret that. I hope that listeners hear just how absolutely incredible this area of law is and how heartbreaking it can be. Uh, And also just how many loose ends we may have left from this conversation just because it is so complicated. Um, Thank you so, so much, Tamina, for being here and and, uh, helping to uh, talk us through this. But you also have you you have your first book, you have a second book coming. Tell us a little bit about your books and where people can learn more about them. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yes. Well, I have three books, technically four. One of them had a second edition. The fourth one hasn't gotten its visa yet, though. Pete. Yeah, right. So it's still, right. we'll see. Yeah, it's in it's process. It just keeps <laughs> waving itself at the border. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> at the airport and everywhere. So this book is a visa guide. 
Okay. And it's a very simple to read, easy, easy to understand visa guide. And it, why, and it's called U.S. Visa Guide for Startups and Founders. But honestly, it's a visa guide for anybody. Well, we will put that in the show notes for sure. Yes. Thank you. So let's say that person who's on a dependent visa who now needs to get off that visa and do something else for herself or her, himself. This book will give all of the visa categories that they can, they can consider. And I wrote it because I finally resigned myself to the fact we will not see immigration reform and we will not see a startup. Wait a minute. <laughs> you think the U.S. Congress can't get something done? <sighs> Come on. Did you know that that would be a laugh line? You probably did. You chose <laughs> to immigrate to this country. Yeah. You know, my husband is an incredible human being. I would follow him anywhere. He's so incredible. He's incredible. came to the U.S. with a non-functioning government. You know, that guy's awesome. I will tell you that, yes, you know, particularly what happened last week, you're sort of watching television thinking, is this yeah. a movie or not? Um, but I will say the American people are good people. This yes. country is an amazing country. You know, dreams do come true here. And so, you know, my new philosophy is let's just focus on the individual, make better individuals and make them happy and joyful. Let them figure out what is their positive energy, what brings them wellness. I think if you can now, that's my philosophy at the moment, if you can focus on the individual, then we can collectively be a better country. You know, I became a U.S. citizen and I love this country. I really do. And people who come to me will often say, you know, in between different sentences, they'll say, well, that's my dream. And I'll be like, oh my gosh, they said those magic words. I have to now do everything I can to make Uh, their American dream come true. I get that same thing. My dream is to get divorced. And I'm like, (laughs) I can make that happen. You might not ever see your children again. You might be flat broke, but I will make that dream come true. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To me, you are aspirational. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. You've got to come here and just shed that energy on us old cynics. This is really, really great. We so appreciate your time. Well, I would love to. I would love to. I know Florida has a lot of beautiful birds. I'm a bird photographer in my spare time, and I'm looking for opportunities to see new birds all the time. So if I make it out there, I'll let you know. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for hanging out. And uh, we are going to turn to listener questions. We're going to let you go, but you're amazing. And one of the things I want to say is anybody who has a question about immigration law, and you want to send it to Tamina, send it to us. We'll send it to Tamina and see if she's too busy to answer us. That's amazing. Uh, com. Submit a question and we'll get it answered. Tamina Watson, thanks so much for hanging out. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute delight. Take care. All right. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. Seth, according to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, about 10% of children live with a parent with an alcohol use disorder. It's just tragic. Pete, we hear this statistic all the time. At the end of the day, the courts don't care about the statistic. The courts care about keeping kids safe. And when I mean safe, I mean safe from a party who truly suffers from an alcohol disorder or is being wrongly accused of having alcoholism or some other alcohol disorder. It's easy and it saves you money. Instead of he said, she said, there's sober links. 
Soberlink is fantastic, and they are a fantastic partner to this show. So what is Soberlink? Soberlink is a device. It's like a breathalyzer, but it is more. You blow into Soberlink whenever you want to prove in real time that you are safe to be with your kids at carpool, at drop-off, at handoff. Whenever you're going to be driving, you blow into Soberlink. It uses facial recognition to prove that you were the one blowing at the time that you are taking the reading. It sends it off to the people who need to know. People involved directly in your case, not to be used for publication, not to be used for social media. This just goes to the people who matter most for your case as you are collecting data. Soberlink remote alcohol monitoring has helped over 500,000 people prove their sobriety and provide peace of mind during parenting time. And Seth, word on the street is courts love it. Yeah. And it's not just when you're getting in a car. Let's be clear. People can say, never gotten a DUI. What's the issue? Well, the issue is once you're home at five o'clock and you're no longer driving, but you're going to start cooking and having a glass of wine and that glass of wine turns into two bottles. That's now an issue. So it's not just getting in the car. It's when you, the children are in your care, custody and control, are you focused on them and not using alcohol? Independent third party, real time verification to support your case. I haven't been drinking Here's the proof. Those are the words that lawyers and courts love, but here are the words you're going to love. You can save 50 bucks off your device and get started right away at Soberlink.com slash toaster. That's Soberlink.com slash toaster. Thank you to Soberlink for sponsoring this show. Seth, are you ready for the question? I've got a question. I'm ready. This question comes from Rich. A big shout out from Pensacola. Shout out, Pensacola. Whoa, in my home state here. Uh-huh, home state. Uh, I just listened to the cult episode, and it was really, really interesting. The problem that I have personally is that I think I might be going through the same thing, but I don't know how to call an attorney and ask him how to figure out if my wife is in a cult. Technically... They call themselves a social club. But listening to that episode made me think that it fits every single other measure that your guest talked about. If someone were to call you, Seth, and say, I think I'm in a cult, what would the next step be? Is there any sort of discernment process that you would take on to help? Bottom line is that I want a divorce, but this social club has an outsized influence on my marriage. And so far, it feels like I can't have a conversation with my wife without knowing that I'm having a conversation with the whole organization. I probably just need to stop trying to have a conversation with anyone and call an attorney. It just feels like I should have more control in the conversation with my so-called partner than I have right now. And I am heartbroken. Rich, I'm so sorry. Seth, what do you think? Rich answered his own question in the question as you were reading it. And he was saying that there's this outside or excuse me, outsized influence in my marriage where I can't have a conversation with my wife without feeling like I'm having it with the whole organization. I'm thinking it takes two people to get married, but only one to get divorced. Yeah. You are actually not required to talk to your spouse during the divorce process. If you have children, you're going to have to communicate about them so absolutely i would call a lawyer and if someone called me and said i think i'm in a cult first off i would try to have an in-person consultation because i don't know who's listening i don't know what's going on with the zoom i don't know who's on the phone in-person consultation 
I would probably insist on that if possible. And I would go through and say, in a half hour or 20 minutes, and I want to give direction to this conversation because it can go all different directions as we heard in our episode. So I would say, take me through a typical Saturday. Take me through a typical Sunday. Take me through a Monday because that is going to give some clarity to the direction of the conversation to see what happens when you're being influenced. And then I might let them just riff it, tell me their story for another 10 minutes or maybe start with that because I want to get a sense of what's happening from their perception. And then I'm going to say, okay, let's break this down a little bit. Here are my concerns, but then here's how the divorce process works. And you might get a lot of what I call ghost people, people that are around, but you don't see them from a lawyer's perspective that are going to put influences on you, on your wife, on the relationship. But ultimately, they are not the decision makers. You and your wife are a decision maker when it comes to a settlement. And if they're influencing her, remember, you're only going to sign that settlement if that works for you. It's not that it's wonderful and great. Can I live with this settlement? So you have agency in that. And if the answer is that you guys can't come to an agreement, we have courts that are open with judges that make decisions and we go from there. Yeah. Yeah. I would also talk about the finances because a lot of cults control your finances. So I'd be looking at that. Well, I think that's a really good question because what what strikes me is that I understand the outsized influence of the organization on the relationship. It could be that your spouse is really in a codependent relationship with this organization, right? It, it may not be a cult. They may not want to be a cult, but, you know, cult is a heavy word, as we heard from Peter Young. And that was a really fascinating episode. And I'm, I'm but but I think what you just said makes so much sense to me. Call the lawyer first, Rich. You you already answered it. Like, let's let's start that process and and um, hear him out. And, and, you know, we have shows about what you want to do in the initial consultation. Yeah. Look at your finances. Is Are your names on everything? Is your name on it? Do you have other people that are in the social club in quotes? Yeah. And their names are on your finances or you see transfers to them. Those are big signs of red flags. The quicker you deal with this, the better. This is not fine wine. It's not going to get better with age. It's only going to get worse. There you go. Rich, thank you so much for reaching out. So sorry that uh, that you're going through this and I hope that at least some of the guidance will help put you on the right path to get this resolved. Thank you, everybody. As we said, howtosplitatoaster.com. You can jump in and ask a question, submit a question to Seth. We've got a couple in the queue here. I'm very excited. We've got a question per episode. They just keep coming in, Seth. You're just, you're, you're on fire is the truth. You're on fire. Well, they don't know if my answers are right, Pete. They got to go talk to a lawyer in their jurisdiction. So it's all good. Yeah, it's all good. We're all safe here. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to this show. It's been a real treat this week. On behalf of Tamina Watson and Seth Nelson, America's favorite divorce attorney, I'm Pete Wright. We'll see you right back here next week on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. How to Split a Toaster is part of the True Story FM podcast network, produced by Andy Nelson, music by T-Bless and the Professionals, and DB Studios. Seth Nelson is an attorney with NLG Divorce and Family Law with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of NLG Divorce and Family Law. 
Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida. 